I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a volatile media landscape, the creator economy has surged. Budgets are growing, creators are creating, and increasingly, major brands are redirecting media budgets to creator campaigns. As the industry evolves, Visionary entrepreneurs and investors are building, buying, and selling businesses that will shape the future of the creator economy. Today, we talk with Ken Harrell, founder of Merchant Bank Ferris. He's a trusted advisor guiding entrepreneurs, investors, and holding companies in raising capital and unleashing the full potential of the creator economy. As an entrepreneur himself, Ken will share how he invests not only blood, sweat, and tears, but also equity to ensure businesses thrive. I'm very proud of what you're doing. Smile for 15 seconds out of day and make the world a better place. Welcome to Everything is Better with Creators, brought to you by Whaler. Join us as we dive into the latest trends, news, and strategies shaping the creator economy and learn how it's driving innovation and change. Well, today is the day on our podcast where we get smart. We get smart about mergers and acquisition, finance, and what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur in the creator economy. I am thrilled, thrilled, thrilled that I am joined by our friend and guest, Ken Harrell, who is the founder of a really interesting company, but I'm going to let you you talk about that. Welcome to the show, Ken. Jamie, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. We met actually through another really smart person who I was honored to speak with, with Michelle Goad. You, you know all the smart people in this creator economy. You're so connected. She is brilliant and just a uh, force of nature, uh, Michelle is. I love the through line here. So I want to start with a bit of an icebreaker. Um, and we're going to talk about the icebreaker before we explain what you do. But um, you've been in so many deals throughout your career. And I know you're not classified necessarily as an investment banker, you're a merchant banker, but tell me, is there, is there a deal that got away from you? You know, in in the movie business, they always asked actors and actresses if there was a role that they wanted, but they didn't get, is there a, a, a deal that got away from you? I would say if there was a deal that got away from me, it was one that I, I wish I would have gotten into. Um, but my, my friends at insight, uh, venture partners got into, and that was one of the original, uh, one of the OGs of the creator economy, that's Shutterstock. That's an OG creator economy deal? Interesting that you would classify that. Well, it, it was originally OG. It was just a photographer putting up photos and setting up a marketplace. It was amazing. I love that. See, we're already off to, off to a hot start. All right. And so what is the best deal that you think you have done to date? Can you, can you say? It, it's another what I would call OG to the creator economy. And that was a uh, education-focused marketplace business of creators called Teachers Pay Teachers. It was founded by Paul Edelman, who was a New York City public school teacher, and he was great at creating content to support uh, education processes and, and to support his classes. He set up a marketplace, which is the most successful marketplace today for teachers to create content, and they sell to other teachers. 
phenomenally successful. We completed a transaction for Paul, who was a founder. We worked with, I'd known Paul for a long time, worked with him for a very long time, and then Tiger Global and Spectrum recapitalized his business and really accelerated the growth. And they brought in uh, Adam Freed to run that business uh, after the transaction. And Adam had been the COO of Etsy. Um, so brought in, you know, that's another what I would call original creator economy business. So I'm, I'm going I'm going back. But those were the foundations of what we have today for our creator economy. That's why I bring it up. No, I, I think that's great. And providing context is so important. All right. So let's let's get into this. Tell us who you are and what you do. Let's let's have a little bit of a. Ken Harrell 101. So Ken Harrell 101. Uh, I am the founder of Ferris. Before founding Ferris, I had gone to Wharton Business School. I'd studied finance and entrepreneurial management. I, uh, After working in a couple of big firms earlier in my career, I helped start two other firms in the mid-90s. And then in 2001, I started Ferris. It was that entrepreneurial experience I had of starting two other firms uh, that gave me the experience to, to start my own firm. And, and from that point, I've always prided myself on working with entrepreneurs and understanding that entrepreneur journey. And I've got a unique lens to that being an entrepreneur, helping entrepreneurs and working with entrepreneurs. So this is an entrepreneurial labor of love that has done well. So I think they always say, do what, you're, do what you love and you do well that, right? Yes. I, I, I love it. It's great. It's an honor to work with the, uh, with the entrepreneurs that, that, that I do. Um, and we've got an, an outstanding opportunity of working with them and helping them through their development cycles and helping them think through how to strategically position themselves and execute on strategic transactions. So do you represent the creator entrepreneur side or the buyer or how do you typically function? It's the creator entrepreneur side. So it's the entrepreneur that builds businesses that ultimately become part of a larger strategic organization or we assist them through a transaction where they bring in very large and late stage private equity and growth capital. And you described to me when we first met that you're a merchant bank, which I think for many people listening, that might be a distinction that they could use a little bit of clarification. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah, so uh, we do two things. We invest in early stage businesses. That's typically uh, a seed round, a, a pre-A round, A or B round uh, business. And we'll invest in those. Those are typically technology platforms and SaaS businesses. Um, and we uh, advise on much later stage uh, businesses that are in valuations between 100 million and a billion in valuation. So why is that a merchant bank, not an investment bank? Because we are investing with our own capital, supporting these businesses. Uh, we're not just an investment bank working for advisory fees. We have an advisory practice and we also have an investing practice. So we support businesses long before they need our services. So you really put in blood, sweat, and tears, and equity, and dollars. <laughs> Real investment, I'm not managing other people's capital. It's my capital, my partner's capital. But I think that's a really important distinction, especially for our audience, because this is a world where many people have gotten successful as creators because they are entrepreneurs, but they're entrepreneurs because they have a passion, and the passion is generally around a point of view, um, a capability, a unique lens on the world where they're creative beings, whether that's building technology or sharing content. And it probably is very scary for people to think about putting their livelihoods and their life's dreams into the hands of, you know, sort of the anonymous investment banker, which, you know, could be 
frightening. How do you help people get over that, you know, that that hurdle and build that relationship where they trust you and you guide them and you're able to guide them? Well, I would say um, I'm fortunate in you know owning my own firm and running my own firm that I uh, really focus on building long-term relationships. And so uh, we will work with entrepreneurs for years, if not over a decade, before it's the right time for them to execute on a transaction that they want. We build those relationships over a long time. Being an entrepreneur myself, I understand the journey that they're going through, uh, which is which is very, very helpful. And we also think through what's really important for them. And and uh, I would say I'm often considered to be a therapist, which is, is partly true, but it's a really emotional journey that entrepreneurs go through when they're doing this. And it's, it's a culmination of often decades of work that gets them to a point where they want to raise capital for the first time, bring in, or they've been approached by lots of private equity firms because they've got a hot company and, uh, and they, want, they want a trusted advisor who can help them through that process. And that's really what we do. What, what I often say is that entrepreneurs are outstanding uh, at selling their service, building the product, engaging their audience, and engaging their customers, not necessarily understanding how to position and, and put their best foot forward for their business. They don't sell their business. That's not what they're in the business of. They're in the business of building a business. We help them articulate that and position that appropriately with, uh, with both strategic acquirers and, uh, and investors. So let's talk about that. He said, you know, the hot, the hot company, the landscape, we're in a pretty volatile moment, I think, in the media and marketing landscape. I mean, as we're talking, this podcast will probably be a few weeks from now, but uh, SAG after strike, lots of strikes. You've got uh, Netflix is coming out with their next earnings. You've got Bob Iger, you know, doing what he's doing at Disney, still dealing with COVID. We're dealing with the discovery of it all. I mean, there, there is nothing but news coming out about the media marketing landscape. And from the perspective of the creator economy, this could be great. It could be an existential threat. What, what do you see as the dynamic and tone of what we're looking at in the marketplace right now as it relates to creator businesses and the runway for them for success in the next six to 12 months? You know, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it until you just brought up this question. And when you think about the strike and the the dearth of Hollywood content that is going to be created and available now, um, it's going to be a um, they're really going to be seeding seeding to the to the creator market and the creator economy. The audience, the audience wants fresh content. Where are they going to get it from? They're going to get it directly from creators now. I think so. I mean, Evan Shapiro had this really interesting stat. Um, I'm a huge fan of his. And the IAB did, a, stat, did a, a whole study about the difference between creator video and Hollywood video. And they studied, I think it was 360 advertisers who said that creator content, like 65% of them said creator content is now premium. And then they also asked the same group, are you moving money from Hollywood video to creator video? And that was also over 60%. So those are data points that support that thesis. So I, I think it's good, but obviously it doesn't mean that there's a, a, a market filled with capital, that the business and the P&Ls are reflecting that yet. It's it's not easy out there to make money as a creator business. What do you see in terms of the, the vibe for creator businesses in this marketplace? 
Well, well, the, well, the first thing that I would just say is, is, is that we all know is that if you spend any time with the creators, they are um, just as professional as anyone that's working directly for a Hollywood studio. I mean, they are very focused on their audience, creating content for them. They'll spend, you know, hours, if not days, editing and getting their content ready for their audience. And, and to diminish it, I don't think gives justice to creators. Um, and so I think you, that content really is professional um, and it is professional and they're the ones that uh, are accelerating at, uh, at it, whether it's Mr. Beast or others at the, at the top of the pyramid are very, very good, but they, they are also extremely hardworking and focused on, on their craft just as much as anyone else. Um, and so uh, the fact that the monetization engines are starting to really take hold and enabling uh, even small or nano uh, creators to be successful, I think is great. And do you think they're successful? There's so many different business models that are floating around. Is it direct to consumer with building brands? Is it a SaaS play? Is it helping brands reach their audience in more of an agency perspective? Do you see any themes or trends for where businesses are succeeding? I think the biggest opportunity right now is the fact that you're starting to see enterprise brands move and shift significant budgets into creator campaigns and influencer campaigns. And that hadn't existed 24 months ago and starting to accelerate now as they find creator campaigns to be a lot more effective than they do through other forms of media for them. I didn't pay you to say that. Thank you for saying no, no, <laughs> no, but it's like, that's, you know, we work with a lot of agencies and a lot of the uh, uh, creator platform businesses and that it's, I mean, all the data we see on the inside is that those enterprise brands are really shifting into in such a meaningful way. And I think if, if you hear of any challenges in the market from creators themselves, it's, it's primarily for the businesses that aren't quite set up to service enterprise brands appropriately, and they're quickly making those shifts so that they can. And so you're seeing, you know, the agile, nimble, um, either agency and or platform really shifting to try to try to meet that demand because there's a lot of demand out there now. I agree on the demand. And I think it, we talked about this earlier. This t feels to me, I'm going to date myself, but like the early 90s when digital marketing first emerged and it was a bit of the Wild West, and we had a lot of stops and starts. But now that you see the enterprise brands getting involved, and when you say enterprise for people that may not know, how do you classify an enterprise brand? I generally refer to it as a big mass consumer brand, not a, not a, a direct consumer brand, not, a, not an emerging brand. So whether it's a, a Coca-Cola or a Mars or a, you know, any of the big brands being supported by Nestle or Ford or automotive or financial services or pharma. I mean, those are all big enterprise brands where you're talking about budgets that are 50 million total budgets. And if they're, if they're going to shift to 5% of that into an influencer campaign, that's huge. If it's a $2 billion budget and they're going to shift 2% into influencer campaigns, that's enormous. And what do you see driving? So you, a couple of things, you're seeing the results are enabling people to make more of these investments, which we see as well. But on the traditional agency side, you've been at the forefront of some of the biggest deals in the space, which is tremendous in terms of WPP, et cetera, really leaning in and investing, which Mark Reed has, is such a visionary um, and whatever he's doing, I think, uh, bears paying attention to from a strategic perspective. Can you talk a little bit about what 
what's driving that and, and what the marketplace and landscape is allowing people to do in a way that they couldn't do it, as you said, 24 months ago? A, there's platforms that are enabling them to do it. You're also seeing um, the impact of the privacy rule changes um, that are impacting the efficacy of paid social. And some of the challenges of other, other forms of media are really getting enterprise brands to focus on the high efficacy that you can get out of running a robust creator campaign, which can enable really interesting targeting, both through the creative content that the creators can create, but then also the audiences that they reach. We're growing up. The industry is growing up and becoming more sophisticated. I think we're, we finally hit the second inning. Yes. And so, and what is the the feeling, if you can share, I mean, we'd love some kind, we'd love, we'd love to have you say something that just goes right up to the edge of being uncomfortable in terms of what you're seeing from the big holding companies and the traditional marketers in this space. Are they excited or, or afraid or enthusiastic? How would you characterize it? I think um, very excited. And there's definitely a um, buy versus build mentality. Some are buyers and WPP has definitely uh, made a, a conscious strategic decision to make several acquisitions of influencer agencies. And then there's others that, that feel that they can build it. Um, and I think that building it may have some challenges because I think, as you know, as well as I do, it's not just having a couple individuals who can come in and be, be talented and try to move a big global agency. You need to, to make significant investment to do that. And sometimes there's uh, the, the pace at which an influencer agency works, I think, is much faster than a big global agency will work. And so that there's some challenges in the pace that you need to do to be responsive to campaigns. So they're, they're buying speed. They're buying uh, talent. They're buying uh, a workforce and a work process that might be faster than trying to build it organically. Yeah, and sometimes they're they're buying real like really advanced platforms that they would not be able to build on their own. And when you say platforms, because I, I want to make this distinction, you're not talking about TikTok. You're talking about proprietary data and workflow platforms. Proprietary platforms that an agency utilizes to run their business better. Hey, listeners, hang tight. We're not going anywhere. Our Everything Is Better with Creators podcast will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, at Whaler, we often say anybody can do it to some, not maybe not even anymore, but anybody could do it technically a campaign with like two or three creators. Not that that's easy. But when you start to get to 20, 50, 100, 500 creators, where it's really a, a significant mass campaign, that gets a lot trickier. Is that is that what you're talking about? Yes. Mass campaigns that get you wide niche audiences that if you've got to cover, think of, of running a campaign that you want to cover three or four different platforms, four or five different verticals, 500 uh, creators. You've got to pay the creators. You've got to contract them. I mean, you, you know the basics of this, but it's also there's a lot around brand safety that's got to come in. If you've got 
you know, hundreds or thousands of pieces of content that are being created, that is not, uh, that's not easy to, to undertake uh, for, for anyone. But there, there are certain platforms that have been able to do that quite platforms in the sense of, uh, of agency platforms that are, are well suited for doing that. And there's teams that have developed those quite well. You want to give a shout out to the ones that you think are doing it really well? Can you? <laughs> well, I uh, well my my uh, my most recent client that's been publicly announced was was obviously and they built a very good platform uh, that was recognized by WPP and others. Um, but there are a lot, there, as you know, Jamie, there are lots of others. So <laughs> I'm trying to be neutral. We're, we're journalism here of a sort, so I'm trying to give you know rising tides lift all boats. I think it's important to show that. There's a lot of evolution in the creator economy and the, this world, and it's not just influencers anymore. It's These are big businesses commanding significant dollars, moving a lot of money, and a lot of money is moving away from, as you said, traditional marketing capabilities into this new space. But with humility, I will say we have a lot to learn. There, there are lessons learned everywhere. Yes. And, uh, indeed. And, and uh, I, I think that there's going to be lots of great advances coming from the software platform supporting the creator economy also. Um, and I think that there's some great, great opportunities there. I think that when you think through the number of, uh, of firms that got unicorn valuations in 21 and raised lots of capital, there's some opportunities for those businesses to, to emerge and live up to their expectations. So in the phrase of expectations. Let's talk about AI and keep it practical, not the hype. And, you know, as we're speaking, there was a really interesting New York Times article about a creator named Kit Lofstadt, who uh, she's a fan fiction writer, and she writes sort of Star Wars and Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction. And she's leading or one of the leaders in a suit um, against many of these AI companies who are scraping data. Um, and, you know, we've had some interesting conversations, you and I, about what AI means for the creator economy. It's, it's not, and I love how you, how you said this, but love for you to unpack it. It's not that we're going to, they're going to lose their jobs. Uh, but you, you have a, a bit more of an optimistic approach or thought, if you could share that. Well, there's, there's two things. I think the, the biggest advantage that we can get out of AI is that it's going to make the job of the creator a lot more efficient. Um, the actual uh, creator is going to have more efficient tools to be able to uh, faster with the editing, ability to create better content, the ability to uh, free themselves for uh, for broader thinking or creating more content and delivering wider variety of content. I think there's going to be some great AI tools for that. The one company which I haven't met with, but I'll give them a, a quick shout out just because I think it's it's fascinating what they're doing is captions, uh, which uh, Kleiner Perkins just invested in and and. They're using AI to really enable uh, really professionalized uh, content for uh, for individual creators. And that looks like it's going to be a very robust platform. Oh, I, I love I love getting an inside tip. That's a, a note about other companies. And, and I'm going to ask you about so just start keep thinking about the companies you want to mention. But I think one of the insights that is coming out of all of these lawsuits and all of this shift, because it's a huge, massive shift, right? Again, going back to all of the unrest and the upheaval of the traditional media marketplace. If you think about it, back in the day, it was radio, then it went to TV. And we, for 50 years, primarily marketing was around making a beautiful TV ad, right? Now you have 
social media, digital, you've got connected TV, you've got creators, you've got TikTok, shorts, reels, you've got so many different permutations. And what I've been reading about with AI is that one of the big insights is that the value of information is not exactly something we really understood with all of these engines scraping and learning from it. How can the audience, or have you heard people with a perspective and how the audience of creatives and creators can either tap into this or protect themselves from sort of how do they be prepared because this isn't going away you can sue people but it's it's happening yeah it's it's happening well i th i think uh you know for the one thing which all companies have got to be careful of right now is is when you ask chat gpt in an open basis to do something with your data or 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 someone else's data or someone else's content, uh, then that becomes part of the, the 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 large language model, and and it's not protected anymore, and it's used to to learn. And so I, I think you might start to see um, some elements of some walled gardens that start to like Reddit. Yeah, I mean you you you, you saw the news about that, so I think that's very interesting. Uh, the 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 one the one thing that I will say is that I think that there may be there may be some great content that's actually created without creators being involved. I mean, who, who knows? I mean, I think the audiences will decide that in, you know, five years or 10 years or, or five months when there's uh, all of a sudden some, some trending uh, sets of content that no human's been involved with. And, and we, we can't decide whether or not that's good or bad content. It's if, if people are watching it, I guess it's gotta be good. I don't know. Yeah, shifts of fashions of what, what is good can change. I mean, who would have thought that ugly, you know, old dad sneakers would be cool? They're cool. So I guess your preferences and, and what is entertaining will change, too. I guess that'll be really interesting when is there a, a moment in time where you say, is this you don't know if it's human created or AI created right now? You can tell. But that doesn't mean it won't. As you said, it doesn't mean you won't. It won't evolve to a place where we enjoy it. Or, or it's so kitschy, it's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. Weird is well, weird is so big on TikTok. I think weird is is another word for unexpected and wh whatever I think is weird might not be weird for for somebody else. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's such a brave new world and and so interesting. Uh but while while I've got your brain in this mode, can, you know, we tend to to think about the US um so exclusively and I want to broaden this. You're you live in London. You're international man of mystery. Every time I talk to you, you're in another capital city. You're, you're flying around. You're never in one place at the same time, twice. Uh, what are you seeing internationally with the creator economy? Can you, can you give us a bit of a overview on what, where, where are things coming out, what companies are doing well? Yeah, I, I know we've, well, we've talked about this before. The one thing that is when you're, when you're living here and you're spending a lot of time going into different environments and you think of Europe, uh, being all all one market, it's not. It's a lot of uh, really individualized markets for creator content. You know, comedy is one of the most important, and humor is the most most important things for creating content. And you know, if it's not in the native language and not being created by someone in the native language, it falls flat and it doesn't work. And so you just see the specialization around creator content that you know that's being developed in, in sort of really dominated by local agencies and local creators uh, whether that's in Germany and and you know and you would think that the 
uh, a German agency would be very strong across all of the DAC region because they all speak German. Well, it's actually regionalized within Germany, but also, you know, the, the German speakers in the Switzerland, you know, uh, need specialized creators that speak to that community too. And so the, I think you see a lot more of that regionalization, which is both from the agency side and, and the creator side. That's so, let's just talk about that for a second. So Netflix obviously doing really well with Korean content, right? The Squid Games, among many others. So what you're saying, though, is it just humor or in general, having a local sensibility to create the content is key? Or is it that localized content may not translate? Or is it only humor? I brought up humor as an example, but I just think it's it's localized content overall. And there's cultural references uh, that will happen within, within a particular culture that just don't really translate outside of that. You know, yes, there are good, there are always going to be creators that that reach a mass audience and and that can reach different communities. But there's also your sub your 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 smaller and your nano creators can create content that really speaks to that to that community. And those those consumers will still want Hollywood content if they when when they get a chance to get it. But they also look at uh, localized content. You said something. I want you to go a little deeper here because it's so interesting. I don't want to gloss over it. You talk about specialization. Go go a little further into that. That's super interesting. What do you mean by that? So specialization is was you know coming out of con. That was one of the key themes that we were hearing across the board from brands uh, and uh, creator platforms and creator agencies. You've got specialization across platform. It's it's hard if if you're very good at at uh, servicing uh, uh, audiences on Twitch, you may not be very good on Instagram. <laughs> um, uh, it, it can be across sector and vertical. It can also be across uh, region. And so, when you think of specialization, are you that that brings some real challenges to running uh, big global campaigns across lots of creators because you need to be able to track across vertical, platform, and region. That's uh, that's a complicated Rubik's cube to solve for big agencies when they're looking at servicing their big global uh, brands. So, is there a world where You've got, you know, you've got agency or creative shops right now who are really good at car commercials, or you've got creative shops or media agencies that are really good at commerce media. Are you saying that it's go, it's going to atomize into to that level of differentiation? No, I, I what 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 I think is is that you can have those those creative talents as long as they're being serviced from sort of a uh, I guess you would call it a common platform and a, a common framework that you're able to bring in the specialization, but it's not being done in an inefficient manner. You need to have efficiency to be able to run these campaigns uh, at scale. Um, and, and without that, then it's going to be not, not cost effective by any means. Got it. So for people who are entrepreneurs, budding entrepreneurs, thinking about, you know, getting to the next level, how would you recommend they think about their business trajectory here? How does somebody in a perfect world get ready to work with a company or someone like you? What are the things that they should be looking for? How should they be thinking about building their business? There's a lot of small agencies. There's a lot of individual creators. What's the, the path to growth and success that you might be able to give them as a, as a guide to, to help them think about the future? Yeah, so um, you really need to really understand your core customers. In your core your core market and um, 
uh, what we're finding in, in, in creator right now, you can't be too wide. You got to, niche does help whether you are a creator yourself owning your niche and, and owning your, uh, your unique selling proposition and define yourself so that you become the scarce asset in that market. That's going to define value for you. And you're going to be scarce, not only to your customers and your employees, but also to the strategic parties and investors that are looking for uh, that, that value that is, that is, is, uh, is truly scarce. Scarcity, specificity, and specialization. I'm seeing a theme. And is there anything, is there a category right now that's hot that, you know, people are saying like, for example, B2B, or are there other areas that you're seeing in the business landscape that are uh, scarce that you're looking for? I would say right now it is uh, within the context of the agencies. It's, it's really uh, the agencies that have got the scalability and profitability and there are, um, and that are, are showing resiliency right now uh, in this market because there are, are some that have not shown that resiliency and, and maybe uh, uh, missed out on some campaigns or, or, or had some opportunities where campaigns churned off or customers churned and, and decided not to, not to move forward with campaigns. And, and that could be reflective of uh, that customer base that you had and, and not the customer base. That's the one that's actually growing right now. So resiliency right now, I think, is very important. And that's what uh, the strategic parties are looking for. Okay, so... Uh, Ken, you, I've been asking you all the questions. I, something tells me you you want to ask the question because you're usually the person that's the moderator. <laughs> um, what do you think is the biggest headwind right now uh, in the creator economy? Excellent question. I think fear. I think that what we're seeing with our clients is the choices that most marketers make. They don't have a lot of room for error. And most executives are trying not to take too many risks, and yet they're being forced because it is a bit of a burning platform moment with traditional media investments. So how do you get air cover for decisions you're making within the creator economy that's a relatively new space, even though it's been around for over a decade? And being fearful is uh, is a huge challenge. So we're trying to, we just did an MMM study. We're trying to give people the data and the facts and the insights so they can make better decisions and convince their colleagues in the C-suite that, yeah, you should be moving more money here. But I think fear is, you know, when you're fearful and there's a lot of fear out there because there's a lot of headwinds, I, I think you're in your lizard brain and it gets you out of your creative brain. And, and, that's a tough place to be. So I would say that the toughest thing that we're facing right now is fear. It's a great question. It's a really good question. I love it. I don't, and you know, I don't know if you're seeing that too. It's like you're, you, people are, you're on the other side of the deal structures, but are you seeing fear or optimism? Yeah, we're, we're still in a cycle right now where um, uh, uh, I would say, particularly from the investor perspective, the private equity firms are in a, uh, looking for a reason to say no rather than looking for a reason to say yes. But because of that, you're not seeing as much overall deal volume. But we are seeing those, those quality businesses that are seeking a transaction right now, valuations are very, very strong. The good businesses are getting great valuations and there's not a lot of competition from a, from a deal perspective for them. 
Oh, I love that. Looking for reasons to say no versus looking for opportunities to say yes. I think that's a good that's a good theme. We live through those cycles all the time. Well, we do. And I think that's part of the perspective here is what I was saying is like in the early 90s. Right. We thought that was the that was it. And then we had we've had a few crashes since then. But the trajectory is moving forward. And so I, I would actually say I'm very optimistic so that while there are headwinds, there's some significant tailwinds as well. And I'm I'm very bullish on the space. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wake up and do this every day, but there, you know, there's some PT Barnums out there. Yeah. You just need to talk to, to a handful of Gen Zers and you understand why there's so much opportunity here. So true. They don't care. They want, they want what they want when and where they want it. That that's it. And actually, well, well we started with a Michelle Goad reference and I'm going to end with a Michelle Goad reference. And she said, we don't realize it, but Gen Z girls are driving your product roadmap. And I think it is so true right now. Look at a Gen Z girl and you're get, and I don't care where they could be in Switzerland, Germany, Japan. They rule the world. Yes, they really do. Well, Ken Harold, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an education. And uh, if someone wants to reach out and talk to you, how what's the best way to find more information about you and Ferris? Email me at kharrell at ferris.com or um, go directly to our, our website at ferris.com. And they might not find you because you're a man of mystery moving around the world, but, you know. My team will follow up to them. Okay, good. There you go. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ken. Great. Thank you. Everything is Better with Creators is honored to be part of the Adweek Podcast Network and the Acast Creator Network. And we're so grateful for your support. So if you enjoyed the show, please hit that subscribe button. And if you have a moment, we'd really appreciate a rating and a review. To keep up with all things Whaler and the latest in the creator economy, check us out at whaler.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Jamie Goodfriend signing off for now. We'll catch you next time with another episode of Everything is Better with Creators, powered by Whaler. Thanks so much for tuning in.